Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Thursday, August 5th edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks, all of you, for joining us for our show today. Um, I want to get right to the panel because we have a lot to talk about. So on Thursdays, we welcome Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, to the show. And Kevin, you are with us today. And while I introduce you, I should thank you for taking over for me last week, a week ago today, when uh, Janice and I went off to a four-day holiday in New York City. How are you today, Kevin? Well, Bill, it's great to be here. And yes, I was glad that I could help you take a few days off. I mean, I talked to your producers and everyone agreed that maybe you're getting a little grumpy and needed some time away. <laughs> I don't know that time off helps me with grumpiness. Uh, thank you for <laughs> saying that, though, Kevin. I'm glad you're here <clears throat> today. Excuse me. Um, Senator Kim Jackson is back with us again today, Democratic senator from Stone Mountain, uh, Kim, we're always glad to have you on the show. And we, we should always add to your credential uh, that you are an Episcopalian, an Episcopal priest, and that you serve as the vicar of the Church of the Common Ground, which is a ministry that uh, addresses homelessness. And interestingly enough, many of the people you're dealing with are those homeless people who we see right across the street from the state capitol day in and day out, right? That's right, Bill, and thanks so much for having me. I'm always good to be with you. Um, we're going to ask you in a little while about COVID and uh, homelessness, and we'll get to that as the show goes on. Leo Smith is with us today. Leo, of course, a Republican political consultant and also the founder and president of Engaged Futures, uh, which is an organization deals with education and other issues on which uh, he tries to build Speaking of common ground, common ground, uh, diverse peoples coming together to solve problems. Hi, Leo. Hello, Bill. Good to see you looking all refreshed from your, from your time off. <laughs> uh, as our listeners know, the reason he can say that is that we use WebEx as just a way to see each other, even though, unfortunately, the technology doesn't allow us to broadcast it out. Chart Riggle is back with us today as well, reporter for the Marietta Daily Journal. Uh, Chart, how are you doing these days? I'm doing well. Uh, we're, we're back in school in Cobb County, and um, I'm thankful to not be a parent right now. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, actually, uh, you, you, what you just said leads us immediately into a conversation I want to have with all of you. And, and I'm, I'm going to start with a, a macro view. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to read you a couple, just a couple paragraphs from a piece that Politico posted yesterday, the headline of which was Chaos and Confusion Back to School Turns Ugly as Delta Rages. And again, they're talking about the national picture, but it applies here in Georgia. School boards are at war with governors over masks. Superintendents are developing contingency plans on the fly. And schools that only just opened have had to shut down. Nearly 18 months into the pandemic, there's no consensus on how to keep students and staff safe 
local school leaders, whipsawed by changing federal guidance, find themselves building a patchwork of protections based as much on local politics as public health. Quote, it's a terrible position to be in. Dan Dominich, executive director of the American Association of School Administrators, said in an interview, we have a huge crisis and nobody wants to make a decision. You're leaving superintendents wide open to fall to pressure from their community. Kevin, we could certainly say that much of that applies to what ex we're experiencing across Georgia right now. You know, Bill, you, you could not be more right. Uh, whenever I get a chance to talk to school superintendents, <laughs> I realize they may have the toughest job uh, that you can take because it's at the nexus of uh, tax dollars and public policy and parents and children. And it's just so hard. And you really get the impression as you watch this unfold in Georgia that you had people who worked very, very, very hard to prepare for a situation as they went back to school this fall that called for all kinds of things to happen. And then the variant took off and everything changed. And now they're trying to adjust. And don't forget, I mean, in Gwinnett County, we have a brand new superintendent. I mean, there are, there are just so many challenges out there. And talk about the rubber meeting the road. It meets the rubber meets the road in a school district in the end. Yeah, I, I do think that one of the things the Politico piece uh, sets us up to talk about is the clash between politics and public health at this important moment. And it applies not just to how we deal with COVID in the schools, but, but it, as we deal with COVID in a more general way. Um, a chart, Governor Kemp, who has encouraged people to get vaccinated, he gets credit for that. He says over and over again, he's been vaccinated uh, he thinks it's it's a good thing to do, although he thinks people should make their own minds up about it, which in some ways is not being as strong as he could be on it. But when it comes to masks in schools and in communities, he simply does not want to go there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as, as Kevin pointed out, the whole idea for this coming school year was we're going to take the summer. We're going to figure this out. We're going to drop all our policies and then we'll be able to hit the ground running in August. And then, I mean, it feels like the last two weeks, everything is just like hit the fan all over again. Um, and, you know, obviously I, we'll, we'll see what happens from the governor's office. You know, there was the letter from Bert Jones, the governor uh, this week, but we also had um, state rep Eric Allen sending a letter to the Cobb County school district uh, just this week because Cobb Schools has now updated their mask policy. Originally, it was optional. Now they're saying we strongly recommend. We've had a lot of parents saying, you know, reconsidering whether they want their kids to go to school. Maybe they want to do it at home, but there's problems coming up with that. So it's just the, the, the best laid plans, I think, of all these districts and superintendents um, and, and all the rest of it are really just kind of uh, rapidly deteriorating. Yeah, I, I will say that um, while I wish that the governor actually would provide a, a statewide mask mandate for um, any type of indoor activity, I appreciate that at least with our schools, uh, he's allowing people, the superintendents, the school boards, to make the decisions for themselves. And, and otherwise, another, in, in other words, he's not standing in the way of local school boards making, uh, I think, life-saving decisions for our children. And so I, I recognize that puts a, a heavy burden on school boards and on superintendents. Um, but 
at this point, I think especially because of the way that the science continues to evolve and we're learning more and more information about this Delta every day, right? And so actually placing the decisions in local school board's hands, local superintendents, it allows them to be a little bit more nimble in how they respond to this. And so, you know, my, my hope would be that we would move um, through, we would get people, enough people vaccinated so that our children can go to school without having to wear a mask. But until we get to that place, it's absolutely essential that we protect our children and we protect our larger communities by putting masks on our children. Leo? Yeah, you know, I went to a school meeting in preparation for my children to have their first day of school activity today at, at the school they, they attend. Um, all the parents were asked to put on masks eventually, but I think masks are going to be optional eventually at that school. Um, I'm in leadership for various schools here, so we are taking this thing very seriously. And I think it's important that everybody understand that we have to continue the brass tacks, and that is social distancing, hand washing you know, the cafeteria procedures, uh, you know, transportation protocols, attendance protocols. These are the brass tacks that local school officials need to, to be making sure they take care of. There's lots of COVID relief money out there for schools to, and uh, you know, exact these sort of procedures. And so really the onus is not on the government, it's on these local um, leaders of schools to do the right thing based on reason, logic, and the science that's available, which does as a as Kim just said, it keeps changing. And so err on the side of precaution is what people should do. You know, for, for me, I just think that the vaccination piece is not being, you know, talked about enough. It's not being encouraged enough. We keep talking about masks, but masks, um, according to the current science, are, you know, less effective than vaccination. And I would love to see us really focus on vaccination. You know, Kevin, I do think there's a, a, a contradiction that is worth discussing here. Uh, Governor Kemp has repeatedly said he wants local school systems. Leo Smith echoes that sentiment. And actually, Kim Jackson uh, seems fairly comfortable with that notion to make their own decisions. So here are Republicans saying don't the state should not mandate to local school systems what they should do about protecting their students and their staffs with masks. Oh, but by the way, the state certainly should dictate whether they can teach so-called critical race theory. So, I mean, there's no question politics plays a huge role in um, how we're dealing with COVID this time around again. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, every public health decision in a, in a situation like this is also a political decision, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I personally sometimes stop and think about how history may treat us um, when people look back on this 50 or 100 years from now uh, and our decisions. But without question, Governor Kemp has resisted pressure and stuck to his guns about not issuing an anti-mask mandate, which mm -hmm. may not be you know, the highest praise uh, to give him. But certainly that's happened in other states, in, in particular uh, Florida, where it's gotten a very high profile. And he has encouraged vaccines. I do think we have to keep coming back to, uh, you know, what do we know? What we know for sure is vaccines, vaccines, vaccines is the answer. We also know that masks are highly effective and were effective last year during during the school year when kids were in class. The real, those two those two things are true, and I believe the science has shown they are unassailable despite how people may feel about them in terms of public health. So, um, Leo, 
Chart already referred to it a moment ago, but um, you now have Senator Burt Jones, Jackson, Georgia, um, urging Governor Kemp to issue an order that would prevent local school systems from putting mask mandates in place. Um, it's hard not to see that, Leo, in a political uh, prism. After all, Burt Jones is expected to run for lieutenant governor. He's been down to Mar-a-Lago to be posed for pictures with Donald Trump. He certainly is looking to curry Trump's favor. Um, and the notion, and, and he's replicating what's already happening with Republican Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and Republican Governor uh, Doug Ducey in uh, Arizona. Um, Leo, uh, weigh in on that. No, certainly you cannot escape the fact that we're um, in a political environment. You've got, you know, the midterms coming up and certainly the campaigns are about to hit in, in high gear. Everybody's trying to get in, in this primary race that we're going to have for um, all of the Republican positions. There's going to be a race to the right, as far right as you can get. And, and certainly grabbing the headlines and getting some press right here this morning for Burt Jones um, based on, you know, presenting this idea that we want to force Governor Kemp, who's been on attack by a base, to do something that Governor Kemp may uh, have reason not to do. And, and uh, clearly he's leading not in that direction. But it's popular amongst the Republican right right now to attack Governor Kemp. And so uh, he's, he's using that ploy. And it makes sense for his campaign strategy. It may not make sense for uh, the best health and uh, treatment of our citizens. Yeah, I mean, Leo, I, I I do agree with you that on a, from a campaign strategy standpoint, it does make sense uh, for Senator Jones, for my colleague and friend. Uh, however, I, I wonder if there aren't some better strategies that don't risk lives. So, you know, this strategy of saying, let's issue a mandate, mandating that you can't mandate not wearing masks. Um, first of all, that's a bit absurd. Um, but but second of all, I just wonder if uh, Republicans might be able to make a pivot to what you're talking about, Leo, where um, will they celebrate Operation Warp Speed, which was a Trump uh, initiative that was funded? I mean, we have a vaccine because Donald Trump and many, many others, and let's name science, um, really stepped up and got us a vaccine. And so uh, could, could we not make that pivot where, where Burt Jones and others like him who are leaning far to the right um, can say, like, let's get on the Trump train and get vaccinated like Trump did. Um, you know, I wonder if that might be a way to, to kind of uh, pander to his constituents, if you will, while also saving lives and keeping our children safe. You know, uh, uh, Senator Jackson brings up something that I'd love to hear from both her and Leo on as, as, as the skilled politicians that they both are. Um, I, you just wonder if Republicans can turn this thing in a way that would really help them because there are, there's a sentiment growing that now maybe President Biden has blown this whole thing. I mean, he, had, he was given the vaccine, he put ambitious goals out there, and now this is starting to feel like, gosh, we're right back where we were last summer or hurry, in a hurry to get there. Um, Leo, you think that's what's going to happen? Do you think that's where well, Republicans will go? Or are we waiting to talk about that wait. later, Bill? <laughs> Leo, uh, Chart, Kim, before any of you weigh in on that, let me add a piece of information that I think is relevant uh, at this moment. Um, it, in fact, Trump's HHS secretary, Alex Azar, did exactly what you, uh, you Kim, and you, Kevin, are t pointing to. He has now issued a statement saying, we 
worked hard to develop this vaccine in record time, we as members of the Trump administration, and it's now incumbent upon everyone to take advantage of the work we did and get vaccinated. And Leo, that is a really strong talking point that if Republicans wanted to make a turn, they could. But Leo, it's going to require Donald Trump jumping on board that train, I think, before that could happen, isn't it? It is, and I think he will. Um, I think in time, uh, as Kim has brought up and Kevin has brought up, that uh, actually uh, that message will start to be pushed um, by Trump's advisors, and uh, the media will jump onto that to point out the government dysfunction that is greater under Biden. There's much more confusion because there was a focus on getting Operation Warp Speed on the way, getting a vaccination. That focus gave clarity about direction. Where we are now is absolutely complete disarray, and distrust of government is increasing. The threat of taking away freedom grows. And so right now, um, political consultants are advising their candidates to take advantage of this existential threat on freedom. You know, this idea that we're going to have, you know, 28 percent of unvaccinated people and black Americans not being able to go to restaurants, not having their freedoms and liberties. And that to people, when they hear that, that's scarier. Than reasons. Yeah, I and mean, let's be clear now, this is not the work of President Biden, who is going to be taking people's freedoms away. Um, this is about a variant and a virus that is deadly. And so this is a response to people's public health. Uh, it's a response to people's livelihood. Uh, so to suggest that this is somehow um, the president's fault is absolutely, I, I think it's erroneous. And I think that it only continues to foment distrust in a government that is functioning, that is working. You know, President Biden, under his administration, we have gotten so many jabs into arms, into the arms of the willing. The ones who have not been willing, many of them have not been willing because of the rhetoric and the messages of the former president, not today's president. And so, um, you know, we can talk about the changing science and, and the ways that the messaging is changing. Um, and, and that, again, it, it's just like if you are a, mediato, a meteorologist who's trying to predict a hurricane, you know, sometimes that hurricane doesn't land where we predicted that it would. It's a natural event that's happening. And that's what we're seeing with this, with this Delta variant. Chart, let me get uh, uh, you in here again, because you have dealt with this up in Cobb County. As you point out uh, earlier on, uh, Cobb County was a little bit more relaxed in talking about, you know, whether people should mask up in schools. Um, now there seem to be encouraging it, right? Talk a little bit about the dynamic between parents and school officials that has um really stoked a lot of controversy in your county up there. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about this this latest episode this week, which is obviously, you know, just a few days into the school year, is that this is coming on the heels of almost a year now, or maybe even more, depending on who you ask, of very intense political disputes at the school board level in Cobb County. Um, we, we have a slight Democratic minority there, Republican majority, and so we had the, the critical race theory uh, controversy over the summer. We had plenty of COVID controversy last year. There was the incident that made national headlines with um, the, the school board members being asked to put on masks at a meeting, and they didn't, and then that got picked up all over the country. Um, and I don't know. I, it, things seem to have not quite escalated to that point yet, but, but we are like tensions are still running very high. 
there, uh, the superintendent pointed out, you know, as people are calling on him to make changes that, well, we're also about to undergo this special review by Cognia, the state accreditation agency. Um, and, you know, it, what happens if we're seen as even more, uh, you know, bowing to political pressure? And so I, I don't, this hasn't happened yet, but it, it's entirely possible that in the coming weeks and months, especially if cases continue to climb, if teachers start getting sick again, um, that this is going to explode all over again. And I think there's going to be a lot of, um, there's going to be a lot of fingers being pointed, Uh, a lot of, a lot of people trying to, you know, shift the blame because it's just, it will be very messy if, if it gets to that point. And obviously we all hope it doesn't, but, um, the way things are going right now um, from a just uh, epidemiological perspective, it's, it's, yeah. So, um, Kevin, let's expand our conversation about uh, uh, protections against this new strain of the virus and talk about the private sector for just a couple of minutes. Um, We know now that Piedmont and Emory Healthcare Systems are going to mandate that their employees be vaccinated. They're giving them, I think, till October 1st to be, be vaccinated. Home Depot is not going that far there, but they've put a mask, a mask order in place for all of the people who work in their stores across the country. And uh, Cox has now become one of the first, to the best of my knowledge, private companies uh, in, in the Southeast to mandate uh, vaccines as well. So we are starting to see a shift, and it's going to be interesting whether uh, uh, companies, other companies begin to look at, ma- at, at vaccination mandates uh, for their employees. I know that's a tricky subject, but you've got to think uh, maybe we're headed in that direction, and that is fraught with problems. Yeah, Bill, let me clarify one point before I I go into your question. Um, Since I work for Cox, which owns the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Cox's decision was to uh, say to employees, we're planning to go back into our our buildings, our workspaces on September 13th. And in order to do that, you have to prove that you've been vaccinated or you won't be able to come into the building. So not mandating ma- uh, uh, vaccines as a condition of employment or anything like that, but just um, the emphasis from our CEO was very much we want to have, we want to assure people of their safety and health when they come to work. And again, I, I think all of these policies, the details uh, you know, can, can get confusing and demanding, but I'll just say as someone who has worked for Cox my entire career, I was really happy and impressed that uh, we took that stand because what I believe it does is encourage people to be vaccinated. It goes to the one place in all of this confusion that says, get vaccinated. That has a big impact. The more people who are vaccinated, the better off we're going to be. Now, as to what other employers will do, I think it's going to be very hard because uh, Leo points out there is certainly a, a significant group of Americans who um, feel that all these choices should be their own and, and that they should not be intruded upon. And then there are companies trying to figure out, well, what do we do here? How do we get back to a workplace in a situation where we can do our work, serve our customers, but still keep our employees safe? Um, I think going forward, um, 
let's just hope more people take seriously the idea that the vaccinations work and that's what we should do. And I think it will become more and more common to ju- for it to be unusual not to be vaccinated. Um, I, I got to get to a break in a minute. I, I know you want to jump in, Leo. Before you do, though, I want to turn to Senator Jackson in her role as a minister, um, a pre, an Episcopal priest. Um, Kim, tell me about your, your ministering to the homeless population in downtown Atlanta. How has this virus been affecting the community you work with and how are efforts to get them vaccinated uh, going right now? Sure. Thank you so much for asking. And and I just want to celebrate the work of the Department of Health in Fulton County. Um, They've sent people out in teams on foot uh, into the spaces where people who are living outside are, and they're putting jabs and arms right there on the street answering questions. And um, so we're seeing increased rates. What we did as a congregation and my board, we made a decision to offer an incentive um, so for every jab that you get, you get a $25 gift card, or if you get Johnson & Johnson, you go ahead and get the full $50. And I will tell you, that has been the most compelling um, thing that I've been able to offer. You know, I've talked to people, I have people who come up to me who live outside and are deeply religious and, and believe that God will protect them. And, and I try to pull out every single theological tool that I have in my belt to, to try to speak to that issue and talk about how I understand that God gives us scientists who help us. But those conversations often go nowhere. But when I conclude with, well, here's my last thing, I will give you $50 if you get a vaccine. Um, Immediately, people are like, where do I go? Sign me up. Um, And so... I think these incentives, I know these incentives work. Um, you know, we've gotten 72 people, um, mostly members of our congregation who kind of live in around Woodruff Park. 72 people have been vaccinated, have received our incentive cards as a result. And so we know that those types of things work. Um, and I hope that that will continue to expand beyond not just people who are experiencing homelessness, but I think there are other members of our communities um, who, who would find incentives like that really helpful. Yeah, I think we should say, I know over in DeKalb County, uh, CEO Michael Thurman, a frequent panelist on the show, also used a gift card incentive and had some, not just with the homeless community, with getting uh, any people in DeKalb to agree to be vaccinated. And he had great success with it there. Leo, I got to get to a break, but I know you want to put in one last word before we do that. So go ahead. No, I love the the seeding and the blessings of vaccination. The, um, you know, I think it's important to allow, again, understanding that CEOs know their workforce. And when we see these differences in the way we're treating vaccination versus mass, some CEOs have workforce that are majority, you know, sitting at home remotely working. So they don't have a policy like that. And so Home Depot has two levels of workforce, the retail workforce that has to interact with people and the people in their corporate offices who are mostly still working from home. And so when you see these disparities and how different companies are treating it, that's actually a feature that they are at best in the best place to decide how to treat the workforce to protect their interests, which is what, you know, retail service to their customers and also invest in property uh, uh, profit for their company. Okay, Leo Smith gets the last word in this segment. We're going to take a break back with more in just a moment. (laughs) 
Kevin Riley, Leo Smith, Senator Kim Jackson, Chart Riggle uh, with me on today's show. Chart, let me start with you on this, if I may. We all know we want to do a follow-up to a story we've been following this week. We all know that the eviction moratorium put in place by CDC expired uh, just at the end of last week. As a result of uh, that, uh, uh, it's, it's possible that as many as 300-plus thousand Georgians could be forced out of their living accommodations, whether it's mortgages to a home or uh, rent that they have not been able to pay. Uh, President Biden was under a lot of pressure from his left wing to do something about this. Um, he wasn't sure he could, uh, but he went ahead and, and, and essentially urged CDC to extend the moratorium for areas of the country that have a certain percentage of COVID-positive cases in the community and covering many, many parts of the country. So now, a chart, this eviction moratorium extends into October, but it's, it remains very controversial. Yeah, um, I, there were a couple of things that stuck out to me about the, the national uh, response and the move by Biden, I, I thought it was interesting that they were they were pretty candid about the the opinion from uh, Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh earlier this year, where he pretty explicitly said, don't try this. And they said, look, we don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to try it and we're going to see if this can just buy us some time. Um, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that policy will actually work in practice, just based on I mean, is that something that will change, come in and out? Like if, you know, if cases go down in an area, like does the, are they then exempted from that? Um, and then there's obviously the, the rental assistance program, which in some jurisdictions in, in where I work, Cobb County, has been doing reasonably well. Um, but on the whole, nationally, it's a small, small percentage of that that has actually been dispersed um, and and. There's there's a lot of frustration, I think, with that, because there's just, as you say, like the, the scope of the problem is is pretty immense. And I, I feel like we've been talking about this for a year now or more is, is you know, when is when are we going to get to the it, it's sort of like this cliff that we keep coming right up to. And then we almost thought we had crossed over just this past weekend. And now we're right back on the edge of it. But it's just, you know, you, you have to wonder at a certain point when. Uh, when this will run out and, and how sort of cataclysmic, I guess, it will be. Yeah, Kevin Chart raises several good points here. Number one, Biden uh, wasn't sure, given the Supreme Court's uh, decision, whether he could legally uh, have another extension to this moratorium. Uh, he was concerned that there were hundreds of millions of dollars in assistance that had not been distributed uh, locally. So he wanted to throw the whole thing over to Congress, tell them it was up to them to pass legislation that might extend the moratorium. Speaker of the House Pelosi of his own party said to him, no, I'm sorry, this is your problem, Kevin. Yeah, and a problem it, it really is. I mean, uh, local jurisdictions who have access to all this money just cannot get it dispersed. Confusing federal guidelines, um, the need for landlords and tenants to work together. Um, and I think even we, we ran a story today that DeKalb County, which had originally started this policy of not necessarily reimbursing all of the rent, but a big percentage of it as sort of a, a way to reach more people. In other words, if we give 
everyone, say, 70% of their rent, we can touch more people than giving fewer people 100% of the rent. Uh, it isn't working. And I think they've thrown that out the window. So everyone's trying. The money's there. It just is, it's just, it can't, ha it doesn't happen fast enough to have the real impact that was intended with it. Um, Leo, the Wall Street Journal this morning uh, published an editorial that I think is relevant to our conversation. Let me read you first just a bit of it, and Kim Jackson, you can weigh in too. When Donald Trump took action that exceeded his authority, all of Washington erupted in protest. Yet that is exactly what President Biden did Tuesday when his administration reissued a nationwide eviction moratorium after the White House had argued at length it lacked the legal authority to do so. The bulk of the constitutional scholarship says it's not likely to pass constitutional muster, President Biden admitted Tuesday. But at a minimum, by the time it gets litigated, it will probably give some additional time while we're getting that $45 billion out to people who are, in fact, behind and don't have the money. And the Wall Street Journal then opines many presidents have overstepped their authority, but this is premeditated lawlessness. It's a pretty compelling argument, Leo. It is, and, and, and it points out sort of our hypocrisy based on our partisanship, which we need to get better at. Um, so certainly, you know, that's, that's, that's loud and clear here. You know, the thing that really concerns me that the Wall Street also had an article I mean, you know, just many opinions about what does this mean for um, the, the real estate market? What does this mean for real estate investors? Oftentimes people first investment. What does this mean to low cost home um, buying or a low cost rental um, programs? I and mean, government is probably going to be the most trusted institution to run these because I think this is going to hurt um, the affordable housing movement more than it hurts anything. And so this is a big concern with long-term implications where people now who might have invested in affordable housing are saying, can I take a risk on communities where the tenant may struggle to pay? And then the issue of can the government properly give out money that's available is not do we have enough money to give out to more people, is that we don't have processes that we can trust, administrative processes that are quick and that can be responsive at times of pandemic. And that's a big question about the effectiveness of government. Kim yeah, Jackson, I, wanna... I get the human. Let me just, I'm sorry, let me just say, I get the humanitarian needs. I, no question. People should not be without a roof over their heads, especially as the pandemic uh, ignites again. Um, but there are matters of law that are worth considering, aren't there? Sure. I mean, I, I think that this is one of those spaces where we have to consider human lives and the cost of saving human lives, of, of keeping people out of hospitals, which ultimately will cost us, um, versus keeping people in their homes where they are safer. When we know you are going to get your money, the money is there. Um, landlords who are you know, in arrears, they will get their money. It's just going to take some time. And so, I mean, I, I think about this in the same way. So we have stoplights, right? There are red lights that that all of us as regular citizens, we abide by. But when I worked as an EMT, I drove an ambulance. And when I would turn on lights and sirens to get to somebody who maybe was having a heart attack or maybe they were in labor about to bring a new life into this world, I got to run those red lights. And I see that's what's happening with this, this eviction expansion is that, you know, we got lights and sirens running. There are real lives at risk here. They're families. We spent the entire top of the hour talking about children and wanting to make sure that children are able to go to school and be cared for. Well, children can't go to school when they're living outside on the streets. 
right? It is very hard to educate our children well when they are being evicted, when they're being put out, when they're having to move around because um, they haven't paid their rent. And so I see this as an emergency. It's time to take some emergency action, and that's what our president has done. Well, you know, one of the things I've reflected on, in particular, the, using the um, the moratorium on evictions as an example, is I think it shows that as a country, as a people, and as individuals, we're just tired. In other words, the moratorium existed. Everybody knew that, despite um, its its uh, what it was trying to accomplish. It wasn't like that magic date of expiration was somehow a finish line that made everybody safe or settled the arguments that we were having. And I just think that we're going to continue to face that both at the federal, state, local, and on a personal level, which is, man, we've been at this for so long. I mean, how many times can I wash my hands? When am I going to be able to go to a restaurant safely? People just are sort of lost their edge a little bit with being absolutely on top of this thing. And to me, that is going to be an important thing, uh, in particular leadership from the White House and from the governor's mansion and legislature is making the messages clear that, look, we're just not out of the woods and we've run a marathon. Let's not trip here in the last hundred yards. So, um, Jared, before we leave the subject, let me ask you about a different aspect of what the journal's editorial points out. They're suggesting that um, there's this double standard that when Donald Trump exceeded his authority, the media was quick to jump on him, to criticize him, to condemn him. Uh, President Biden has not faced similar uh, uh, pushback uh, as a result of the eviction moratorium extension. Now, you could argue, as Kim Jackson just did very passionately, that it's a different situation, that he's trying to act in the best interests of all people. And nevertheless, I think we talk about it on this show with some regularity. We get that there is often a double standard in terms of how Trump was dealt with, maybe for good reason, and uh, the way a Democratic administration. That is in popular favor with a majority of Americans. Chart? Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to point out, first of all, is that we don't yet know. I mean, the, the, the Wall Street Journal is obviously alleging that Biden is overstepping his authority, that he's acting... I don't know if unconstitutionally is the word, but overstepping his bounds. Um, we don't yet know if that's the case until it gets legally decided. Um, and then just on the, I don't know, the, the double standard thing, it's, it's, I think that is a point worth making by the Wall Street Journal. I don't know that anyone is particularly surprised to hear that at this point. It's, it's I mean, this is like, it's, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we kind of knew that. Um, I don't know. It, it's just, um, and, and you know, it, it, there is obviously going to be some criticism of a, a Democratic president taking this measure. Um, it, you know, I, I know that some conservative slash like landlords groups are planning to sue over this latest action. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I, I double standard is it's sort of, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, not surprising to me. I think that when we talk about double standards, Bill, they always exist, of course. In this case, um, I'm not a constitutional uh, expert, so I wouldn't make that argument. And I sure as heck wouldn't let the journal, Wall Street Journal get away with accusing others of double standards. But let's set that aside for a moment <laughs> and, and agree on this. 
if you look at how this story is covered, if you look at how we tend to frame it, even in our conversation, we are talking about the people who may be evicted, which is, you know, a very human uh, and a very uh, sort of obvious thing. But the flip side of that is there are people, as Leo points out, whose businesses or e whether they be small businesses where they're renting, they have an apartment building that they own and that's their business, or they're huge corporations that are in the, in, the, in the real estate business who are also affected by this because this is their source of income. And so it's a classic conflict of, of perception, right? Who deserves more attention? The person who may lose their place, of, their dwelling, or the person who may lose their entire livelihood because the people who live in the buildings they manage cannot afford to pay them. Both sides deserve attention. Yeah, I think that makes that, that's a really good point. There are a lot of mom and pop uh, 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 purveyors of, of apartment houses and that sort of thing who are in jeopardy overall. All right, we've got to get to our final break of the show. And let's talk about some electoral politics when we come back, including... An article that the jolt, which was just put up online, points us to from Bloomberg about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Is she thinking about running for president? We'll talk about that and more in just a minute. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I just want to mention it, and then we're going to talk about Stacey Abrams and maybe tomorrow on the show talk more about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Bloomberg has just reported, Marjor here's the lead, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican congresswoman from Georgia known for espousing debunked conspiracy theories, plans to appear this month at the Iowa State Fair, according to, uh, to people familiar with her plans. The gathering is a traditional platform for White House aspirants. I've been there many times with presidential candidates, and it is a big deal for uh, people who are presidential candidates to show up there. It's not clear, says Bloomberg, whether she will actually speak at the event for, for politicians on August 19th or just attend it. So we'll watch that carefully. But certainly her national profile has accelerated very quick on that one, Kevin. Well, I just have to refer to our Greg Bluestein's uh, tweet on this. Uh, he, he, he pondered a Georgia-flavored 2024 election, uh, Green versus Abrams, and then said, I am already regretting this tweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, like I said, Greg Bluestein actually is going to be with us on the show tomorrow, so we'll talk more about Marjorie Taylor Green. But, but Kim Jackson... I want to ask you about Stacey Abrams. Um, Stacey Abrams has just announced she is going on a nationwide tour, and the quote is, of exciting conversations on politics, leadership, and social justice that will take her from San Antonio to Durham, North Carolina. From September through November, there are no events scheduled yet in Georgia, but when she tweeted this out, Kim, a lot of Democrats wondered what the heck is going on. Is Stacey Abrams thinking, perhaps, of passing up on a race for governor? What's your take on this, Kim? 
Yeah, so I am, uh, I have no insider information. I want to just uh, say that this is all uh, my opinions, but uh, here's what I believe in and what we know about Stacey Abrams is she's been very clear that she wants to be the executive who runs Georgia. Um, she's also been very clear about her deep uh, commitment and love of Georgia and um, that at the very least, if not her, then a Democrat would need to be our governor. And so um, because of those, I think, principles, she knows that it would be too late uh, to get a Democrat in who would be able to compete. So I feel quite optimistic that she is going to run. Here's my thing. You can do two things at once. And we already know that Stacey has her eye towards the White House after she served as governor. And so this is a great tour for her as she continues to think about her work and her run towards the White House eventually. Um, but that does not have to preclude um, a successful bid for governor here in Georgia. I, I'm not worried in the least bit. I believe Stacey Abrams will be our next governor. Well, and of course, uh, Leo, we should point out that a tour like this will allow Stacey Abrams to raise a lot more money uh, for a fair fight. Um, per, some of it may be campaign money for her eventual campaign, but also money for fair fight action, which is working on election integrity issues. Bingo, B-I-N-G-O, and that is it. I mean, it's a brilliant move by Stacey Abrams. <laughs> Uh, celebrity wins elections. We know that, except for Kanye, yes, perhaps, but you know, Kanye, <laughs> Kanye West. Um, but this is this is, you know, Bill, Bill, uh, Representative, this is textbook. You know how to run a campaign and be financed without campaign finance restrictions. Brilliant. So let me, Kevin. You know, we talk about the pressure that our Olympic athletes have been facing in Tokyo. I mean, we've had more and more stories by people like Simone Biles who are, you know, feeling such intense pressure to compete. Stacey Abrams may or may not really at this point can want to run for governor. We really don't know. She hasn't told us unequivocally. But, man, the pressure on her to do so is more intense than ever because right now the rest of the potential field is frozen in place. Yeah, and I think Senator Jackson <laughs> makes the point, right? I mean, she pointed out that if if uh, Abrams doesn't run, uh, we Democrats could effectively be ceding another term to Brian Kemp, right? Um, the one thing that I thought about when I heard of all this, and again, I have no insider knowledge and certainly haven't talked to Stacey Abrams, is that you know when there was a a, a movement to get her to run for the Senate. Um, she made clear that she was not interested in being one of 100 people who don't get anything done. Mm -hmm. And so the impulse to ha be in a spot to be influential and effective and make change happen, um, I, I think that's a possibility that she would say, gosh, doing what I'm doing, I can maybe get four or five governors elected as opposed to just getting myself elected in Georgia. And maybe that's the course that she will take because it's very odd for someone's profile to increase in the amazing way that hers has when all she did was lose a governor's race, when you get right down to it, right? I mean, and of course, from there, she can't uphold to other things, but she may decide, look, I can, I can be the biggest Democratic player in the country by doing something else than be governor of Georgia. Chart? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... It's interesting. I mean, I think Leo and Bill, you both made this point, but the fundraising aspect is huge um, because not only is the governor's race going to be up for re-election, but uh, we're going to have Reverend Warnock uh, running for re-election as well. And I know there are other 
big ticket races around the country. But given the attention that the two Senate races got in January and November before that, and given the profile of Stacey Abrams, I mean, I still have to think that Georgia is going to be, if not the the marquee item, like still in that top tier of uh, the the national media's attention. Um, and, And with that, there's going to be a big reliance, I think, on on out-of-state money. Um, I, you know, I'm sure Governor Kemp is already looking to bring as much of that in as he can. And I mean, it's it's going to be staggering the amount of money that gets raised and spent for this race. And you know, I, so whether what what this necessarily signals, I think you can interpret a different way, a couple different ways. But you know. If if it is uh, leading up to a run for governor, I, I do think that is probably a, a very sound explanation to get uh, as, as many people in her corner as she can from all over the country. Uh, uh, Kim Jackson, uh, we should point out that Representative Al Williams, who's a close friend of Stacey Abrams, uh, told the AJC uh, just a few weeks ago this, quote, I'm almost as certain Stacy will run as I am certain the sun will rise in the east tomorrow. Uh, you believe that to be the case as well. Um, does she continue to hold off, say, until the end of the year? Does she have to say something before the special session, the reapportionment session? Can she wait till the beginning of next year? What's the strategy here from your point of view? Bill, I mean, here she's already running, right? I mean, she continues to keep her name ID up. We are talking about her right now. So it doesn't matter. She doesn't have to actually fill out the paperwork until qualifying. Um, and so I, this is she's already raising money. She's already out in the streets. Um, you know, we can talk about the work of Fair Counts and Fair Fight that's been happening um, in Georgia. If you go down to southwest Georgia right now, they know Stacey Abrams' name very well because folks from Fair Counts have been down there getting vaccines in arms, have been uh, doing all of the work of making sure that people are ready for redistricting. And so she's already running. Let's be clear about that. And her continuing <laughs> to do this other work out there, um, it's, it's all a part of her running. And, and we certainly know that no matter when she finally declares, raising money is not going to be a problem right. for uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Senator Kim Jackson, Leo Smith, Chart Riggle, and, of course, my Thursday partner, Kevin Riley. Thank you all for being with us uh, for our show today. By the way, if uh, you missed our show yesterday, and, and as you have more and more questions about how to deal with the Delta variant, uh, I suggest you go back and either on the podcast or on our website at gpb.org PR, listen to the show we did yesterday with four of the top public health experts that we could find to uh, talk about where we stand with the Delta variant today and how you should deal with uh, protecting yourself. It was a fascinating conversation, and I continue to be grateful for the people who did that show. Um, That's it for us today. Uh, We, of course, will be back with another show tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. Yes, listen to the CDC. Wear a mask inside uh, buildings, even if you are vaccinated. And if for some reason you're not, please think about getting a vaccine as soon as possible. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow.